But we're going to be chapter 3 starting at verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis, write these things, saith that he that has the seven spirits of God. Underline that seven spirits of God or make note of that. And the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that hath liveth and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen. That watchful and strengthen there is important. Watchful and strengthen the things that which remain. That thou art ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore now that thou hast received and heard. And hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. I would underline that as I come to thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Now, in order for us to really get a good picture of what Jesus is saying here to the church of Sardis, we need to dig into some facts about Sardis. You know, and I think that sometimes what I really love about Wednesday nights is I get to teach and it's almost like a history class. I get to dig into some of the facts and some of the, the uh, history that surrounds what the Bible is talking about. And then through that, it kind of gives us a better picture of what Jesus was writing. Amen. And so there is two historical facts that is very important that bear a lot of weight on this letter to Sardis. And the first one was that Sardis was developed on a ridge that jetted out over the mountain that had a sheer drop of 1,500 foot. So Sardis, the first original development of Sardis was kind of like a cliff, a cliff dwelling. It was up on a high mountain and it come down over the side of the cliff and they built and they jetted out and they, they carved back and, and so they developed the city there up on there and it was a 1500 foot drop to the bottom of the valley. And so that made the city nearly impregnable, impregnable. They could not, couldn't be attacked. Heaven's sakes, there was only one way up and they can control it. And so it was a very safe city. And so uh, with that, uh, it gave the city a lot of safety from all the enemies. And, uh, but what happened was everybody's flooded to that city because it was a sanctuary city. It was a city. I mean, it's no different than today. You know, big cities have high crime rates. There's a lot of trash, a lot of filth. And so what does people do? They work in a city and they go to a suburb to live. They go to a suburb to live where it's outside of the city, where it's cleaner, it's nicer, it's safer to, ri to raise a family. Now, we don't know that. I mean, here, because to us, Shady Point is a suburb. <laughs> Cameron is a suburb. So we don't really have a concept. But anyway, if you've lived outside of this area, you know what I'm talking about. 
But uh, anyway, that was the same way. People fled to this city because it was a safe place to dwell. Low crime rate. And so, uh, uh, and tell me, I mean, it doesn't matter whether you were born, you know, 2,000 years ago or you born today. Your family's important to you. It's ingrained in us to want to keep them safe and to protect them. And so that was one of the things. But here's the thing. The city finally outgrew its area. It wasn't like that, you know, you take like, I remember, and there are probably some that's, how many, uh, uh, how many been in this area for 50 years around Poto? Anybody been around Poto for 50 years? 50 years. Anybody longer than 50 years? I know Larry's been 70. Uh, anybody else longer than 70? Not yet. No. Not yet. <laughs> uh, uh, anyone close to 70 then? So, but anyway, uh, you can remember that, and my grandma used to tell me, and I can remember when, when you started heading out towards Walmart or out towards the past buds and all that, that was all just fields. I mean, we used to go to the little church that was up there on the highway by the, now it's a beauty college, and that was basically in a field. That was past the end of town. I mean, it was just, just the way that it was. And I remember my grandma telling me stories about when that they, they lived in Pleasant Valley and how that they would walk all the way into town, all the way into Holton's, and all of this was fields and farmland all around here. And so the reason that I'm doing this is to paint the picture to how much that this city has grown. It, it has grown. Its city limits has expanded. It has grown. It's gotten bigger uh, uh, in every direction, the north, the south, the east, the west. I mean, it's for heaven's sakes, it's growing up against Kavanaugh. Nobody ever thought that it would grow that far. And now it's growing out the other directions. Because it has areas to grow. It has the ability to grow. It has land mass. The problem with Sardis was it was built on the side of a cliff. It had nowhere to grow. <laughs> they had already grown as far as they could grow. So the next step was to grow down. And so they moved to the foot of the bluff, to the cliff there, in the valley. And they started developing and growing all of that. Now, the first uh, uh, primary protection was the city because all the city officials and stuff lived up on the top. Everybody else worked and lived down in the bottom. So the bottom was kind of like the defense mechanism to protect the top. But what they found, and legend has it, was that there is a river that runs through that valley that when they moved down there and that they started really developing that, they discovered that there was gold laying all over the banks of the river. You know, and that's what started the gold rush to California out west. Was in, in 1849, the 49ers discovered gold in the riverbeds and in the creek beds out west. And it caused a gold rush to be out there. Gold uh, uh, will come up and it will actually be underneath the rocks, underneath pressure. But as the rocks and erosion and stuff and as the ground moves and stuff, it rolls up and becomes... And it can lay literally on the top of the ground. And that's what everybody was doing with the gold rushes. Was running out there to pick up that free money off of the riverbanks and off the creek banks. 
So, same thing here. They discovered gold. Well, it was like, whoo, now they had a reason to move down on the bottom, right? <laughs> to go pick up free money off the ground. And so the city started expanding out that way. So, it had a reputation of being a very wealthy place, a place that you could easily get rich. And it was a safe place to be. And so... The other thing that I thought very interesting over all of the thousands of years that Sardis existed, it was only conquered twice. Two times. Now, as I was going, I was studying like the city of Ephesus. Man, that people would just flood in there, tear that place down and rebuild it and go back on every time that they changed. But Sardis was only conquered twice. Because of how that it was built. They could conquer areas of it, but they couldn't conquer all of it. Because it was impenetrable. It couldn't be done. It couldn't be overthrown. Until Cyrus of Persia was mounting an attack and he was going to be persistent. And this was in the B.C.'s around 200, 300 or no, it was later than that, five or 600 B.C., somewhere in that area. But he had it in his mind, and, and I'm, let me back up because I'm not real sure on that date. But it was a long time ago. <laughs> All right. But, uh, but anyway, he was, uh, he was determined to conquer Sardis. No one had ever been able to conquer it, and he was conquering it. And so that was when the Persian army was conquering and developing its empire and growing. And so he was mounting up a, an attack, and yet Sardis was so relaxed because they thought they were so safe that they put very few watchmen over the wall looking down. It's like, why do we need to? Ain't nobody can attack us from this area. Until the Cyrus of Persia was, had his groups of army back out in the distance and they were watching and they seen one of the guards, a watchman that was up on the cliff, drop his military helmet off of the side of the cliff, off of the wall. He was like probably looking down there, you know, fiddling around. Oops, there went the helmet and he seen it land down there and he thought, uh-oh, I will be in trouble if I go back to my shift without my helmet. So he climbs over the side of the wall and there was crevices and they had developed a very unique and secret way to get up and down that mountain, up and down that cliff. And so he scours down through the crevices and stuff like that and makes his way all the way to the bottom, gets his helmet, puts it back on and goes back up. That night, Sardis was conquered for the first time with a handful of men. They scaled the wall exactly like they seen the guard that went down to get his helmet and go back up. I thought that was an interesting fact. Huh? <laughs> what was the odds that you could almost see like Gomer Pyle with his helmet stumbling around up there. They put him on the guard watch where because it was the safest place in the city for him not to tear anything up or mess anything up. And he drops his helmet, he goes down and gets it. And the city is conquered for the first time in its history <laughs> over a dropped helmet <laughs> with a handful of guys. He didn't even send the whole army up. Just a handful of guys. They went in and took the leaders. And after they got the leaders, the whole city fell. Second time 
was around the 300 B.C. area, and it was by Alexandria the Great. There was people that had served in his army and underneath his leadership that heard of the legend and of the stories about how Sardis was conquered. And so Alexander the Great was conquering all of Asia Minor. And he come up to the stronghold of Sardis. And he could not beat it. And somebody come up and said, hey, there was a legend. There was a story. And he tells the story and shows them the story that was written out. And that, you know, like a legend about a guy dropping his helmet over there and going up there. And so Alexander the Great stood back and looked at the mountain and he studied it for days until he figured out exactly of how in his mind that they were able to scale that mountain and take the city. And that was the second time the city fell. Was Alexander the Great conquered the city by the same way that it was conquered the first time. But the thing that I want to understand and to point out is each time the city was conquered, it was conquered because it thought it could not be conquered. And it was very relaxed. The Word of God says that sudden destruction will come or, or, uh, before the, or there will be a fall. If you have pride in your life, let me get this straight. If you have pride in your life, then you will fall. It's because you don't believe that you can fall. You don't believe that you can be whooped. You know, and how often in our life is that just an example to us? We think everything's good, everything's going well, the life is rolling on, work is being okay, you know, church is okay, family is okay. So why do I really need to study this morning and read any word of God? Why do I really, I mean, I've got all of these other activities going on and I'm really tired, I'm really wore out. What would it be for me just to sit at home and relax on Sunday morning and take a break? Yeah. But see, that's the point of all this. Yeah. See, here's the thing. We get to a point that we get very relaxed in our lives. They get very relaxed in our lives and the enemy is setting back looking at the walls of protection that God has put around us and he's looking for a crack that we have left in that wall that he can secretly scour up and overrun us and take us out. Anytime that I have failed in my life, it wasn't because God failed me, it was because I failed myself. I failed myself by not doing what I needed to do to protect myself. God, give me all the tools that I needed and I did not implement them in my life. And I failed. And so, with that, the thing that I want to bring out is because when Jesus wrote this letter, and now another interesting fact was this was... A long time after when John the Revelator was writing this, that Jesus gave him this words to write to the city of uh, Sardis, they had already been on the decline. The city had already been on the decline. It was conquered twice as never. And so it was like nobody just it had people living in it, but they had lost their spirit. They had lost their pride. They have been beat down. And so the city just wasn't flourishing like it used to be. You know, uh, you can go to some uh, cities, tourist cities around. 
And one of them that comes to mind is, is uh, you know, sometimes you can go and uh, how many, and I know that Junior and Betty, because they practically live there sometimes, but like Hot Springs. Ever been to Hot Springs? And when you go down that old bathhouse row, and you see that back in the 20s, and you look at some of the old pictures of how that city was flourishing, and now you kind of go and it just, it don't have the same flavor. So what's it doing? It's living off of its wealth and prosperity and the legends and the rumors of what it used to be. Now, Hot Springs still has, you know, the bathrobe house and, and stuff like that and has the Hot Springs and stuff, but they play up and they trump up its history. And so that was what was happening with Sardis. So when John, when Jesus told John to pin this to the church of Sardis, this church was already dying. The people, the city was already dying. But yet it had a reputation of being very wealthy and being very lively and safe. It was putting up a front to try to get people in, to try to draw people in. And so when Jesus wrote this and he started bringing out and he started talking about the, the facts here about that... Uh, about the wealth and security and that they is dead, they knew exactly because they understood the death that was happening in their growth. They understood the revelation that was coming to them. It wasn't something that they just had to scratch their head and go, what in the world does he mean by the things that are dead and the things that are dying? No, they knew, hey, he's talking to us. We are living on a reputation of being alive, but we know that we're dead. Down deep inside, we know that this city is dying and this church is struggling and, and it's all fading away. They understood that. You can't tell me that you go into a church that is struggling spiritually and there ain't somebody in there that knows it. There's somebody in there that knows that there's a dead spirit. Now, you may have a whole lot of other corpses around there, but somebody went in there going, come on, man, can we feel it? I mean, come on, let's, let's praise the Lord. And you see some, I mean, you can go into some churches, and there may be just one. But they know it's dying. And they may be trying to do everything they can to resuscitate it, But they know. And that's what they hear that when John was reading this and sent this letter to the pastors there and they was reading, I can see this man standing up there and he's weeping with tears as the spirit is pricking his heart because he knows that they have been living on what they used to be spiritually. Some of us are still living on the day that we got saved. On that feeling. We're still living on that. And we've not grown anymore in our life. We were so blessed and so overwhelmed and so touched by the Spirit of God when we got up from that altar. And yet we have never done anything else in our life to promote our growth in Christ from that point. Amen. We're living on the moment that we got saved. And we've not done anything to continue our spiritual health and growth. Whatever that we need to be doing to build spiritual growth in our life is what that we need to be doing. Amen. 
I mean, that's just it. I mean, there, there comes a point in our lives that we got to quit living on other people's blessings and start creating our own through the Spirit of the Lord. Amen? We got we to gotta grow up. We got to get, get some spirit in us and become alive. Boy, there's nothing more sad as if I've been around somebody for a while and then one day they tell me that they're a Christian. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Right? You know, I, I really get sad because it was like, you're what? Now, I, I've really practiced this over the years, and I try not to act surprised. <laughs> used to, I probably didn't hide it as well. But used to, it was like, what? Nah, surely not you. You know, <laughs> There ain't no way that you're saved and going to church. There's no way. <laughs> uh, get out of town. <laughs> you know Jesus, the same one I know. Are you sure? <laughs> uh, you know, but, but really, you know, uh, uh, we, is anybody else the same way? That when somebody says, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm saved. I go to church every Sunday and Wednesday, and you're like, what? Janet was telling me that somebody that she knew told them that they just really hated to miss Wednesday night Bible studies. And I think that was one of those moments. It's like... Really? <laughs> uh, I had some guys that refused to miss church on Wednesday nights when we were traveling in Oklahoma City. And I actually, to tell you how naive I was, I thought about getting a hold of some of them. And I thought, well, you know, they're excited to be in Oklahoma City. And I was a young manager at the time. And I hadn't been managing, so I hadn't made too many trips to Oklahoma City. And they was telling me how exciting that it was. I can't wait to get back to church on Wednesday night up there. And I was thinking, hey, man, maybe I'll check out this church. Until I found out it was a bar named The Church in Oklahoma City. <laughs> so that was kind of the experience. It was like, is there a bar named Bible Study <laughs> that they're going to on Wednesday night? <laughs> is there... <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the guys there had mercy on me and told me that it was not actually a church that they were going to and for me not to load up and go with them because they were encouraging me to go when I made interest to it and somebody called me and said no please don't go with them they're not, they're not going to church they, well, they say they're going to church no they're not going to church well he swore that they were going to church they are going to church but they're not going to church like you would know church it's a bar called church and so <laughs> uh, so but anyway we get the point. You know, there's a lot of people out there that are dying and don't know it. There's a lot of people out there that are dead and don't know it in their spirit. Because they have never done anything to foster anything else to protect them. They got to a safe place and a safe zone in their life where they were just comfortably enough 
financially and just comfortably enough in their family and in their walk with God, and then they just quit and not done anything else. And Jesus loved them enough to give them a letter directly to them. And church, that's what I am reading to you tonight, that no matter that where you are in your walk, if you do not have a burning passion for Jesus Christ to know him better today than what you knew him for yesterday, you are on your way and you're probably needing CPR right now. And if I don't stand up here and tell you, then I am guilty for letting you die. And there's one thing there's one thing that I pray. That when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that I am not responsible for any of your deaths. And so we need to be evaluating ourselves and never get safe in what that we're doing. I don't care how we were raised. I don't care what we think or what we've been taught. I'm telling you, we are responsible for ourselves. It says work out your own salvation with fear, with fear and trembling. If we are not scared that we need to do more for Jesus Christ, then I'm telling you, there's already something wrong inside of us. And then here's the other thing that I want us to know because when Jesus was writing these words, I told you where it said, watch and strengthen and hold fast. And as I come as a thief, these words right here, Jesus was really painting the picture and saying, you know what? And he was reminding them of the two times that they were comfortable in their lives and that the thief come up in the middle of the night and took them away into captivity. I'm going to tell you, if we are not working on our personal walk with Jesus Christ, there is a thief right now scaling your wall, fixing to come over the top and take you out. I mean, that's just the way it is. And that's what Jesus was telling them. You remember the two times the enemy come in and took you out? Because you wasn't watching? Because you wasn't paying attention? I see more people struggling in their marriages and in their families with their children and in work, uh, work relationships and even in church relationships because they are not watching the enemy scale the walls. I'm going to tell you right now, there is one thing I can tell you for sure that every one of us has a strong man assigned to us. Every one of us, and that's what the Word of God says. There, there is a strong man that is assigned to us. And that strong man, if you want me to just break it down and make it simple, is they're just demons. And these demons are assigned to us to attack us, to give us trouble throughout the day. They are just setting up looking for attacks. If you go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, 11, and 12, you start to see where the Paul starts talking about all of the principalities and the darknesses and the, and the powers and wicked places. What he's doing in the Greek is he's setting up an, a level of authorities. And these strongmans are the lower-lying authorities that come around and just kind of peck at us all day long looking for us to make a crack in our walk with Christ 
so they can invite in more trouble into our lives. You know, the other morning I was praying, and, and as I was praying, I just sat in my chair. And after I get praying, a lot of times I just sat there and just say, Lord, what you want to talk to me today? And, and sometimes I, I was sharing with some, and sometimes I will sit in that chair. I'll go in there, and I'll do a little bit of praise and worship, play a couple of songs on the guitar, sing a little bit. And, and that, that's the only place that, that I can actually sing, and nobody run me out. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I sit there and I sing a little bit and I just do a little bit of praise and worship with the Lord. And, and then I sit down and I just say, Lord, today, my prayer is that you just speak to me. And that's it. I have literally sat in that chair for hours and not said a word other than, Lord, I love you and here I am. And I've had some of the most powerful moments and powerful encounters in my life by just sitting there in that chair and just say, God, today is your day. I'm going to discipline myself and my mind to just sit here in your presence and listen to you. See, we think that prayer is getting up and sweating and, and, and hollering and praying and all this other stuff. And sometimes all we got to do is just sit there and say, Lord, here I am. Here I am. And I'm telling you, my heart has been broken before and been emptied out and filled back up and never said a word. God is so good. He's so good. And I don't even have to say anything because he knows me so well. All I got to do is just make myself available. You know, the most precious thing that I can give him is my time. But anyway... But as I sat in there the couple of days ago, it may have been a week ago, I was just sitting there and all of a sudden, how many people know chess? You know, play the game chess. And all that. And I was sitting there and the Lord started showing me a chess board with all the pawns and all the, the rooks, the knights, the bishops, the castles, the king, queen, the pawns that go across there. And as I started to look at that, and as I was seeing this, I started to see these, these figures, these game pieces, move. Now, I, I learned the game of chess when I was about in the sixth grade, so I understand the concept of, of chess. And so I start to see these things, and the Lord said, Do you notice anything about this? And I'm seeing these move, and it was actually, I was seeing the black ones move, and then I'd see the white ones move. And I started, and all of a sudden, the Lord just showed me that all of them pieces, them chess pieces, move by a set of rules. Can I get a witness? If it's a castle, it's going to go straight or to the side. And it can go on any color. It can go up, go to black, or it can go to white, wherever it is. It can stop there, and it can go left or, right, or it can go straight or to the side, but it has to only go straight or vertical, perpendicular or vertical. And it can stop on white and start on black, and it can vice versa. But it, that's its rule. A knight, the little horsey, can go up to, over to. Yeah? It can go up to this way, can go up to and over to this way. It can even go backwards. Any direction, but that's its rule. It cannot move outside of its rule. A bishop, 
A bishop is a very powerful opponent on the game chess, but it can move diagonally, and it can move all the way across the board on a diagonal way in any direction diagonally, but it must stay on its own color. It cannot go off of its color. It's limited by the rules. Pawns can move in any direction that they want, but they can only move one step at a time. They're limited in their direction. And what the Lord started showing me was that, that we, we get to a point in our lives, in our Christian walk. Now, every one of them chess pieces are more powerful in different ways than other ones. Right? They're all important and they're all powerful and they all help to win the game. But every one of them is limited in a different way by a set of rules. And so as I was just asking the Lord, Lord, what do you mean by they're limited by the set of rules? I understand that. And he said, this is the church. This is how the church is. He said, every one of them is important. Every one of them has the same amount of power that's been given them. But they are limited by the rules of their knowledge that they pertain. You know, church, that is us. We all have the same spirit of God that is in us. We have the resurrection power residing in us. Anybody that has asked Jesus Christ into their heart has the same spirit in them. But we are limited on how that we move in the kingdom of God by the rules that we have set up in our mind. Some of us believe that we can only do so much. And that's exactly how far that we can go. Not any farther. Some of us believe that we can't do nothing but make one step at a time like a pawn. And that is just getting into church and getting out of church. And that's all that they can do. Same spirit that is inside of me is the same spirit that's in you. The same spirit that was in Billy Graham. The same spirit that was in Jesus Christ that raised him from the dead. We all have the same spirit. But yet we're limited by the rules that we let the enemy Tell us. And when we make a decision that we will not be limited anymore in our lives and we dig into the Word of God and we purpose in our lives, then we can be changed to do anything that we need to do in the body of Christ. We realize then that nothing is impossible to those that believe. Nothing is impossible to those that believe. A very simple scripture. A very simple verse. But yet, we're limited. We've got a whole bunch of pawns and a couple of little knights hopping around the board. And it takes forever for them to get anywhere and do anything in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you something. It would be a very long game of chess if all you had was some pawns and some knights. And that is exactly what we got because we have limited ourselves and we've quit growing in the body of Christ. We need to wake up church... And we need to grow. Now, boy, I'm just really struck real hard right here. Here's where I'm going to go ahead and, and, and put an anchor to this. Because I, I think that I want to do this next Wednesday night. Because now we're getting into the seven spirits of God. You know, Jesus said right here, He said... These things saith he that hath the same or the seven spirits of God. 
And so I started doing some studying on the seven spirits of God. And what, you know, uh, how many knows what the number seven represents in the Bible? Anybody care to? This is not a trick question. Okay, sister. Number of completion. Seven means the number of completion. So when you see the seven seals, the seven stars, the seven candlesticks, the seven churches, seven spirits, it's giving an idea and a picture of completeness from beginning to end. Alpha, omega, the start and the last. And so the number seven means the number of completions and it's referenced all throughout the Word of God. And here it is referencing the complete work of the Holy Ghost in God. The Holy Spirit in God. And I'm going to go through these very quickly and I want you to write these down if you can. Because these are the seven spirits that is in Christ to help us be workers. Next week I'm going to pick this back up and we're going to tie the Old Testament into the New Testament, into the Scriptures, and show that we have everything that it takes to move in any direction in God's kingdom as long as we are working and applying the Spirit to us. John 14 and 16 references the complete Spirit of the Comforter and the Helper in our lives. John 14, and if you want to just know this is all John 14, starting at 16 through 27 is where all of this is found. John 14 and 17 is the spirit of truth. John 14, 18, and 20 is the personal, uh, the personal presence of God in your life to achieve. 21 through 22 is Him being manifested in us through Christ. 23 through 24 is abiding in His presence in the Trinity. So... If you have the Spirit of Jesus Christ inside of you, you have the Spirit of God, you have the Spirit of the Son, and you have the Spirit of the Holy Ghost all residing, all completeness, all power residing inside of you. John 20, 14, 25, and 26 is our teacher, the Spirit to teach. And then John 14, 27... He is the peace of Christ that resides in us. All of these are the seven spirits of Christ that dwell inside of us that was prophesied in Isaiah 11, 1 in chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. 